why doesn't Colorado Springs have nearly the same problem with homelessness that Denver has? I put that question to Jack Briggs, who runs the Colorado Springs Rescue Mission. It's one of the shining stars in the nation on how to handle homeless recovery the right way. On this, the audio version of our television show, Devil's Advocate. You can watch that program by going to youtube.com and searching for our channel, IITV, which stands for Independence Institute TV, or just go to thinkfreedom.org. This is a fascinating discussion. So I ran into the mayor of Denver at an event a few months back. And on the issue of homelessness, I asked him one question, which was, so why doesn't Colorado Springs have nearly the same problem with homelessness that Denver has? And he tried to get through an answer, and he didn't do a very good job. My friend Jack Briggs, however, I think is going to be able to answer that question from the Springs Rescue Mission. Jack, it's great talking with you again. John, it's great to be here again. Thanks. All right. So Colorado Springs handles homelessness very differently. Yes. Your organization is one of the national standouts in helping people truly recover right. from homelessness. So right. um, let me start it this way. Unlike Denver and so many other cesspools of homelessness, they actually have a camping ban that they enforce. Yes. How can they do that? Before we get to what you do, how is it that they enforce this? So in Colorado Springs, uh, we, we do have a no-sit-lie ordinance downtown and a camping ban. And that's enforced, actually, well, was, the ordinance itself was adopted by the city council uh, years ago. And uh, it's enforced through a mechanism where they warn uh, folks that they can't stay there uh, in this particular place, either camping or on the street. Um, and then they'll come through uh, in, I think it's 24 to 48 hours, and they'll start to do cleanups. And they'll confiscate items. Uh, it's kind of the leverage is they'll confiscate the items of the individuals. And so the individuals will, in that interim period, pick their stuff up and, and move. Or uh, a lot of times they'll come to the rescue mission, which is actually uh, the best effect that the no-sit-lie and no-camping ordinance has. Or if they're caught trespassing on private property, tell me if I've got this part wrong, they're often given a choice, which is, well, we have two choices <laughs> for housing for you. You can stay in the wonderful free housing called the county jail, or the city jail, because we can prosecute you, or we can bring you to the rescue mission. Uh, it's your choice. So there's a leverage there. There is. All right. And so, in other words, the law isn't enforced. Right. Unlike Denver, the law is enforced, number one. Uh, can, can I just say something yeah, about that? Please. Because I think it's important for people to understand that the, the police are not just driving around and rousting everybody, right? They're not doing that. They're focused in two areas to begin with. The first is to protect the vulnerable and to do something about the predators, because those are two groups that really stand out. So in Colorado Springs, we don't have as many people on the street as they do in Denver. Uh, and so the, the law enforcement kind of knows who might be out there. And if somebody new shows up, like say there's this young girl, and she shows up and they go to her and they say, uh, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm from El Paso. 
And uh, what's your name? Uh, my name's Candy. Okay, are you 18? Yes. You know, Candy, uh, you can't stay here. So can we take you to the rescue mission or can we take you to one of the trafficked women programs that we have in town? Um, and she'll look over her shoulder down the road at the guy that's parked in the car down the street and say, you know what, I think I'd like that, right? And then they'll come back to the guy in the street, in the car and say, hey, you can't stay here, the predator, right? So uh, gang members, drug dealers, uh, pimps, uh, you know, people that are preying on the vulnerable are the, are the people that they're gonna probably target, uh, you know, go after first to make sure that they understand they can't stay there. Um, but there's also, like in the camps, uh, periodically they need to go through because they become very uh, um, dangerous. Uh, there's a lot of uh, propane tanks, as an example, you know, that aren't uh, very, that are, can be dangerous. But more importantly, the behavior can be very dangerous. Drugs, uh, sex, alcohol, those sorts of things that put the vulnerable uh, uh, more at risk. Uh, plus, it's unsanitary, right? You know, and you know all about that with, uh, you know, stuff that you've tried to address yes. here in Denver. Um, it's unsanitary and it's not well, good. These people are dangerous. In my hometown of Boulder, you know, we talked about my son who was mm -hmm. very vulnerable. Uh, one of his friends was beaten with a baseball bat. He's a mentally disabled person. Mm -hmm. uh, some guy on fentanyl beat him in the face with a baseball yep. bat, a handicapped, mentally handicapped person. He's de delayed. Uh, they haven't caught the guy, and he was just... I'm sorry, yeah, that's terrible. It, it, I can't think of a more disgusting crime that uh, some crazed homeless guy went to town on a developmentally disabled young man with a baseball bat. You know, and we allow this. I just, it, it infuriates me. If I think about it too long, I, I will lose my stuff. All right, so in Colorado Springs, these people are taken in mm -hmm. and they can either go to jail or they can show up on your doorstep. They're given a choice. Or they can take a bus or hitchhike and go to some place that's much more friendly to their lifestyle where they can be given uh, uh, all sorts of services and so they go to Denver. But when they go to the rescue mission, it's different. Mm -hmm. They go to the rescue mission or another service place here in Denver, they're given services and more services. And as any good economist knows, what you subsidize, you get more of. Right. So you get more free clothes, more showers, more tents, more blankets to make it easier to stay on the street. Uh, when you lose those, you're gonna, you're gonna just get more. You get more free needles, more free, <laughs> more free whatever you need, more free food without any sort of um, strings attached. The world's your oyster. What is it you do differently at the Springs Rescue Mission that's getting so much attention? Uh, we operate off of three principles, and uh, these are really important for uh, folks to understand, is the first principle is transaction. So everything that happens on the street, everything is a transaction. If I do this, you'll do that. If you do that, I'll do this. And uh, on the street, unfortunately, that's trading bodies, drugs, alcohol, power, violence, those sorts of things. We try to trade things, and, and when you do that, um, you set up a power differential. So if you're uh, driving on the street and you see somebody and you wanna give them something and you just give it to them and there's nothing you're asking them in return, you're actually activating a power differential there, which is I have something and you don't, I am worth more than you, you are worth less than me, you owe me, 
right? That's a power differential. So we try to do transactions which, which close the power gap. And the first one is we just ask people their names. Like, what's your name? And surprisingly, no one ever asks a homeless person what their name is, ever, right? They're, they just like look at them or they give them a dollar or they give them some water or something like that. Um, when you ask somebody their name and I say, hey, my name's Jack and you tell me your name's John, which name is better, right? There's all of a sudden this closure of, of who's worth more, right? There's, we're kind of worth the same when it comes to our names. Let me kick this back to you. Sure. You and I have talked about this several times. I just want to make sure I'm following. So you're saying out on the street, everything's a transaction. Everything. You're saying everything. So um, um, you, you want something, all right. You want, oh, you want some of this meth? Well, you have sex with me. I'll give you some of this math. That is one of the, that's one of the vehicles of transaction, yes. Right. That I get it. That's very transactional. Mm -hmm. I don't quite get the other stuff, which is, all right, so a guy's on a street corner. He's holding out a sign, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know hungry, hungry, anything cold. helps. Yep. How is that a transaction? And somebody gives them a buck. Um, you know, I, I get the other one being a power play. That one's easy to get. How is this one a transaction? That one just seems like somebody th thinks that they're... Oh, I'm being nice. Mm -hmm. Here's a dollar. Right. How is that a transaction in, in the homeless guy's mind? Help it, me out that. Sure. It's the, again, it goes back to the power differential. Because they don't have anything to give back to you or you're not asking for it, you're setting up a power differential. If it was in prison and someone gave you something and you didn't give it back, you didn't give something back in return, you now owe that individual. That's, I mean, that's how it works. It's how it works on the street. You owe them at this point. So you're kind of, in a toxically empathetic kind of way, you're activating that. Now, uh, I will also tell you that the second principle that goes off of that, and, and by the way, when we talk about transactions at the rescue mission, everything we do, we, we try to fold in this idea of transaction because once you start to have transactions with somebody else that's based on a give and take relationship, your own worth goes up. Your own recognition of your worth goes up because you're making agency decisions. You are deciding for yourself, I will do this, I won't do that. I will, you know, I want that, so I will do this to get it, but it's in a positive way. I'll, uh, I'll join one of the work engagement programs so that I can get uh, uh, a different locker that's located in a place that I can get to it all the time. Um, I want a, we incentivize through different meal structures. Uh, at different times, there's sometimes they're more convenient than others. And we do that by if you participate in this, you'll get a more convenient eating time. If you don't, if you're just sleeping at the rescue mission and eating, you have to wait longer. So, uh, well, I don't want to wait. Okay, well, then you can do this to, to not have to wait. Okay, I, I don't want to do that. Okay, well, then you don't, you have to wait. It's, it's, it's your choice. You're making that choice, not me. The option's there. These are the transactions that we try to fold in. All right. So as somebody who believes in, in capitalism and free exchange, I'm hearing some themes that excite me, which is um, when free people exchange things, you know, I don't, um, I don't think I like the word transactual because I, I see something that is freedom related. You know, uh, I'm selling ice cream, you have a dollar, I value the dollar more than my ice cream, you have value the ice cream cone more than a dollar, Nobody's around us. Nobody tells us what to do. We exchange uh, our, our, your, your dollar for my ice cream cone. We both walk away 
economists call it utility, our utility rises, right. but basically we're both better off. We both smile, you're happier, I'm happier, and we both walk away going, I got a deal, I got a deal. Our lives are improved. It's right. the same thing, which exactly. is you're, you're empowering people. Exactly. Uh, and that transaction, when people are free to make free decisions, they're empowered. Is that what, what exactly. you're doing with these folks? That is exactly it. All right. Now and I'm then, tracking. And the second principle is incentives. So you get what you incentivize. You just mentioned that earlier, right? The more you The more you give them free stuff. Right? So you incentivize. So imagine I wake up on the street one day and I don't have any stuff and I want some stuff. And I know that if I go to that street corner, I'll get some stuff like a granola bar and a bottle of water and maybe five bucks or whatever. When I wake up tomorrow and I want some more stuff, what am I going to do? I'm going to go back there. I'm going to go back there because I'm incentivized. That's where I get stuff. Well, if instead you came to the rescue mission, the, it's, not a, it's not a granola bar and a bottle of water. It's uh, let's get you some health care. Let's, let's have you participate in your own health care choices. Uh, let's get you some uh, work skills training so that you can get a job. Let's get you some addiction recovery uh, activities that can help you to break the cycle that you're in. These are the kinds of incentives that we're going to provide. And in doing that, we start to build what we call relief, restoration, and reintegration. So we're going to relieve the initial conditions that you're in, but we're not going to leave you there because we expect more from you and we believe there is more to you. Your worth is greater than that. It, you've, you've forgotten what your worth is, but we're ready to help you rediscover it if you choose to. The, this re restoration piece is part of that. And then the reintegration. So over a 12 to 18 month period, we're probably gonna take somebody from having uh, an addiction on the streets, maybe a dis disability, and 12 to 18 months later, they're ready to uh, get back into the work community We'll get 30 to 50 people a job each month outside of the rescue mission. Between 15 and 30 people a month will get uh, housing somewhere that they have uh, uh, worked through that they're going to rent with a, either a voucher or with their own income. Uh, you know, so these are three principles. First one I heard was tr uh, transactional. Second is incentives. incentives. And the third is partnerships. So there's 50 plus partners in Colorado Springs that uh, participate with us. Uh, some of them are faith-based as we are, and some are not, and that's okay. What we're trying to do is create an environment where we bring the services to one place, uh, and then the clients come to this one place. And the more clients that come, the more service providers wanna come, and the more service providers that are there, more clients are gonna come because we can start to address them individually and why that's important. In a lot of these cities that have thousands of people on the street, uh, they have passed a tipping point. They have so many people on the street and the services are so distributed that they, they can't treat people as individuals. So what they do is they say, en masse, aggregate, you're, everybody's going to sleep here and everybody's going to eat here. And that's about all we can do. In Colorado Springs, because we have places like the Rescue Mission, we're kind of a cornerstone for this with our 50 partners. We, people can come there and the services can come there and we can start to treat people as an individual. You have an addiction. You have a mental health issue. You have a disability. You are uh, lost an individual. your job. They're individuals, and we can, and the partners can address them individually. If uh, imagine we're sitting around a round table, and there's eight people sitting around this table, but they have blinders on, and all they can see is the thing in the middle that's the problem. If I keep my blinders on in my community, 
I got to figure out all the things I have to do, the many things I have to do to solve that one problem. If I take my blinders off and see there's seven other people sitting around this table that are specialized in what they do, families, veterans, mental health, behavioral health, whatever, we don't have to play the nonprofit hunger games anymore and fight over the little bit of money that's out there. We can specialize in what we do, they can specialize in what they do, and when we do this, all of a sudden, people are uh, getting treated individually for who they are. All That's right. what's important. I want to make sure I get this out before we run out of any time. Meeting, meeting hopelessness, <laughs> meeting homelessness with hope. You, you've been working on this book for a while. I know this has been yeah. a big deal for you, uh, meeting homelessness with hope. Why important to put it all in a book? Uh, because the, you know, you remind me so much of Bob Cote, mm. who created Step 13, now Step Denver, um, coming at it from different sides, but a lot of the same sort of incentive-based work. Um, uh, it's just amazing. But you and a few other folks put this together. You just launched this last week. Uh, last week, uh, and I know you've been working on it in a while. Yeah. You're very proud of it. Um, if I could read, I would read it. Um, why, why so important? Right. Well, first of all, Paul Skoda and uh, Step Denver is an awesome program, and, and we're big and partners does, with them. He does a great job. Yeah, we're, uh, we're very grateful for what he does and, um, and advocate for him a lot. Um, so when we were starting to get noticed uh, for what we were doing, our numbers are in the top couple in the country. Uh, people started calling and asking, like, how do, how do you guys do this? And across uh, Colorado, across the nation, people were starting to ask us. And so my predecessor and I uh, kind of sat down and we thought, you know what, maybe we should capture this on paper uh, so that we could explain it to people. So, you know, we got our crayons out and kind of, <laughs> you know, like, write book, right? I'm a fighter pilot. I read what I wrote and it was unreadable. It was just literally unreadable. So Larry uh, Yonker, who's my predecessor and I, we, you know, let's get a writer. So we got a writer and everything changed once you got a pro, right? Uh, so we have the story arc of uh, a typical client. And through that, we get to explain these things like transaction incentives. Uh, we get to explain why partnerships are important. Um, you know, we get tell to tell a story. Right. We have a story yeah. that we do that. Uh, and there's three audiences, basically, for the book. The first audience is uh, municipality leaders today who can make a, a decision about how they want to handle the situations of homelessness, addiction, and poverty. But we also purposefully launched it the day after the 2023 elections because we'd like to give potential candidates an opportunity to read something about how they could campaign on a real policy-based way to address homelessness, addiction, and poverty in their community in, in, a, in a way that is, our, I believe, articulated in this book. And then the third uh, audience are just the general public because they could understand more clearly some of the policies that are uh, out there with different cities, uh, the net federal policy, how those work and don't work. And and our community, you know, it, it talks about one community's uh, you know, effort to do this. Uh, what we did in Colorado Springs, now is that a find, replace, and you can do this wherever right. you live? No, not exactly. But it gives you the framework to do it. And so that's really why we, we put it on paper. And hopefully, anybody that reads this and looks at a candidate or somebody that's already elected 
or as a leader in the community, a financial leader, a, a thought leader, ask them, why aren't we doing this? Because these people matter. They have worth. You know, people, oh, go, go ahead. Yeah. The people, they have worth. This is why you're a better person than I am. <laughs> because I have been inundated by these people so much that I've lost hope. Okay. All right? And, and it hurts me. I mean, it really does hurt me that because you sub, you, what you subsidize, you get more of. Mm -hmm. And Denver and Boulder have subsidized crime. They have subsidized addiction. They have subsidized homelessness. Um, they have subsidized, I mean, we've had people camp here and you chase them away, you take their tents, you take their sleeping bags, you take this stuff, you throw it away, and the next day they have brand new tents. They have brand new sleeping bags. They have brand new everything because the uh, homeless industrial complex takes your tax money and subsidizes them and gives them more. Mm -hmm. And so you take it away, they get more, they get more, they get more. They vomit on our property, they put needles on our property, they defecate on the property, they vandalize the property, they've broken our windows, they've uh, uh, robbed from us, they have uh, burglarized us. Uh, it, is, it has cost us tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars our insurance rates have gone skyrocketing. People don't, you know, uh, uh, want to come to places. It is, and so I, I've lost my humanity mm. because there was a time I looked at these people and I felt that empathy that you still have and you're doing something about. Now I want them gone. I don't even see them as human anymore. Mm. And part of that reason is because our leaders, our government, keep subsidizing this awful behavior, and now these people are dying on the streets and dying in hotel rooms, and they are hurting people and beating up people with baseball bats, people I know, and I cannot have empathy for them. Mm. I want them gone. I want them gone. You know, this is not, it's, it's not a pleasant thing. And so for people like you, who still see the humanity in them and take the patience and do do that, it, it is a beautiful thing. For people like me who just see the crime and see the harm that they are doing, I can't help but see the ugly side of this uh, and I just want it, want it to end. So let me ask you about the homeless industrial complex okay. that continues to make things worse. I am convinced they don't wanna solve this problem when I see the uh, salaries that some of these people are making to just continue to service these people. And as you said, if you, if you wake up in the morning and people give you new tents and new sleeping bags and new syringes and new places, to, what, is, what is the transaction? Where would you go to learn new, new skills? Where, why, why would you go learn new skills? You know, these people are doing harm. Tell me, what is the incentive inside this homeless industrial complex that continues to subsidize this crime and this awful behavior? Who are these people? Why do they do it? I certainly, first of all, I want to say that I, I understand your perspective. And let me just talk about that for just a yeah. second, your own. Uh, um, 
in an odd way. Maybe you'd feel differently if you lived here well, instead of a cleaner place yeah, like Colorado Springs. Maybe, um, uh, but I, I think part of what uh, drives me to do what I do is because I do see worth. Uh, I do see the worth in people, and I don't want them to be out on the street. I don't want them to be putting needles on your, you know, using needles and putting them in your property or. Uh, terrorizing people or any of those other kinds of things because of their mental instability or something like that, right? Um, because those are th those are serious issues. Um, I had a, a family member who was uh, uh, on and off the street uh, when I was younger, um, and uh, she was she was here in Denver, and uh, she ended up passing away. Um, her addiction and just the life that she led. So I have that piece of it to me that you know sort of helps me to stay grounded in why I'm I'm doing it every day, but I don't want them to be on the street. I don't want them to be out there, um, and when they're incentivized to stay out there, I find that to be an affront as well because it it's counterproductive to the objective of what we should be doing, which is uh, addressing individuals who have worth. And I argue with people. Sometimes, not all the time, uh, when they challenge me about uh, about what we do as a faith-based organization, and they, they don't kind of like that, you know, they come from a different worldview or whatever. Right. And I say to them, uh, well, "I'll just ask you this: ask you this question. Do you think people have worth?" Now, the vast majority of people say yes, and I say, "Well, I agree with you." Now, the question that we could argue with for the you know for the end of time is uh, where that worth comes from but I'm tired of our, that argument. What I'd really like to argue is this. Are you brave enough to work with me this one time to help this one person in this one situation do better? And so far, everybody says yes. And what we end up doing is working together. And the, the incentive there is you get to specialize in the thing that, that drives you every day. What they're doing right now, I think, in a lot of cases, is again, it goes back to the nonprofit hunger games. Because the pie is just a certain size, everybody's fighting over the money to get their share so they can do the thing that they want to do. And so they're trying to advocate. And you know, like we help these people these ways and we're very empathetic and compassionate about these things, but they end up sort of undermining themselves when they do that. My argument to that is, I don't really want the pie to get any bigger. I wanna incentivize programs where we have fewer pie eaters Right? That's the idea here, is that we don't need as big a pie if we have fewer people that are having to experience the things that are happening on the street. So when I talk to my peers and counterparts about this, I'm always trying to find out how can we work together transactionally or exchange-wise. You can come on the campus and do the thing that you do. You will get a uh, voucher from HUD or Medicare or something to do the thing that you do. But more importantly, if you're truly about this, you'll be helping that one person that we both think has worth. That's what's important about this. And I, I can be the smallest guy in the room. I don't care. But if I'm, if I'm incentivizing that sort of activity to help that individual get off the street, get back to their family, get back sober, those are the things that matter in the community. And that's what we're working on. And it, it's a... It, but how do you make sure it. that everybody does get a slice of the pie? Because in the industrial complex, the homeless industrial complex, 
they all do want a slice of the pie. That's mm -hmm. what they get paid for. And the more customers that come, the more homeless that come, the more pallet homes they get to put up, the, the, the more meals they get to shovel out, uh, the more um, uh, tents they have to go out and buy, and, and the more people they visit on the street, the more money they get. You know, they're not a, there's not an incentive to have less. There's an incentive to have more. Uh, so they're all maybe, ca maybe counterintuitively, I'll just put it this way. So yeah. in the last 10 years, El Paso County has grown from about 500,000 to 800,000. We'll go to a million by 2030, right, in, in El Paso County. Back in when we were about 500,000, there were, and these are HUD numbers, not mine, there were roughly 1,500 people that would have been counted in the point in time count right. as housing insecure, whether they're sheltered, unsheltered, uh, uh, counted via uh, sleeping in their car, uh, maybe couch surfing, whatever the things are, right? With 800,000 people now, we have about 1,300, maybe a little less, right? And, it, and part of it, I believe, is because we do have partners that come to the rescue mission. And instead of fighting over the money, something sort of synergistic happens there and they get to kind of do the thing they want to do. And, and, and there's a value to that, and, and they want to do that. And they come to us and say, can we, can we participate with you to do these things? And so maybe, it's, maybe that's the long game in this, is that we, we do more partnerships where you specialize, in, and th there'll probably be a little sifting of who's good at it and who's not. You know, that's part of the market, if you will, you know, even in this particular, uh, sector of the community where some organizations are just better at it than others and they'll probably be the ones that continue to do it and we see partners come like and, who what who's good at what uh so in our community peak vista is uh, our medicare our medicare health provider uh, they have a they have offices on our campus plus they have a 5000 square foot clinic down the street if you don't address somebody's physical health uh, you'll never get them past the, I need a job, then I need a place to live. Their physical health has to come. And so an organization like Peak Vista can help us. We don't have to be the doctors. We don't have to be the, the uh, uh, physician's assistants. We, we don't have to do that. They do it, right? So their partnership, and, and do they have more clients or less clients? Well, our total numbers are coming down in the community, but they continue to, to thrive at what they do. And they can spend less time working on, uh, you know, the homeless indigent population as it goes down, and they can spend more time in community health, as an example. So, uh, you know, part of what we would do, I think, is to change the dynamic of some of these uh, incentives to work on the hardest problem, which is homeless, and maybe transition some of these organizations to community organizations that do community things at a, at a different level. You help people get jobs. We do. How difficult is that? Because you've got people who have been, have mental problems, have mm -hmm. had criminal records, have drug addiction issues. These are, these are not what the people I would think of as having jobs. Bob Cote at Step 13 and now at Step Denver, uh, you know, they specialize in saying, you know what, we need your money, we need you to donate stuff, but we really need you to hire our guys. That's right. That's Same right. thing here? Exactly. So I have a staff that are, they go out externally to the 
organization out in the community and they talk with landlords and employers and explain how can you rent to a sex offender? How can you hire a former meth addict? And what does that look like? And what are the things that go with that? And we demystify, and we have lots of property managers and landlords that come to us and say, I never realized that this could, we could do it this way. Part of it also is we're partners with them. So if, if someone that comes from the rescue mission has a, on their resume that they've been with us for a year, that's a plus. Because they know that if we're gonna put our name on somebody as for an application for uh, employment, they've gone through our program and, and we've kind of coached, mentored, and trained them to be ready to try this. And so th there's a little bit of grace on both sides. And if something isn't working out, the employer can call us, their case manager, and say, hey, this isn't working out. Well, what's the problem? Well, pretty angry, something. We'll call the person in and say, hey, what's going on here? They don't like me. Okay, they don't like you because they feel like you're angry at them. They want you to be there. They, they want you to be participating in what they do. And we'll coach in, again to get them back into that. So we're partners with the uh, employers. Same thing with, um, <laughs> with landlords. You know, this isn't working out. You know, they, well, what's not right? Well, they get mad at me at night. I'm like, well, well not me, the case managers. Uh, well, of course they are because you're playing your radio too loud at two o'clock <laughs> in the morning. You can't do that. Oh, okay. Let's, I'll stop doing that. You know, so it's those sorts of coaching moments where we can help in those first stages of getting somebody back in the community because that reintegration piece, that relief, restoration, and reintegration is really what we're after. You mentioned you're a faith-based organization. We are. You still get government money. We do. Well, that's an establishment of religion. I'm sure people don't like that. I'm sure people go, I don't need to go to your place and get all jesus up just to get, get clean. I hear that all the time. I, I imagine so. And let me tell you, I agree with him. I, I don't, you know, your job is to find them uh, uh, someplace and, and not to be throwing Bibles at them. So fortunately, we have all kinds of different programs. We have some of them that are secular, based, meaning they don't have a faith component to them, um, that provide health, work, and housing. Uh, and we have faith-based programs that you can voluntarily choose to go through. Uh, the success rates between the two, quite frankly, the faith-based ones are, are more successful. Um, we believe that's because they're spiritual. That's because when you, go, when you do, I've seen you do the, the secular ones, and you say, you can try this, you'll go to hell, <laughs> and you won't get clean either. Not quite. Uh, we're much more uh, giving the opportunity for the individuals to make that choice. Again, it's the agency decision, right? This idea that I can choose. When you I say program, choose. are you talking about uh, like the, the therapy and the, the treatment and... So the way the, we do it is the internal in-house in our faith-based programs uh, has addiction recovery and work training and all of these different things. Our partners provide that's those sorts of services to individuals that don't want to do that pro programming. That's, and, and it's all available, you know, right. but there's other organizations that do that. And that's how we work with these partners. We say, hey, you can come here and you can, you can do your program with these individuals if that's what you want to do. All right, so at night, before everybody goes to bed at the rescue mission, they don't have to get down on their knees and pray. You're not, you're not you know, nobody's picking up snakes and uh, talking in, in tongues. You're, you're yeah. going to have to go back and look at some of the things that have gone in 
your life to get you to that point, buddy. I can't help you with that stuff. No, it, it, but it is it is amazing that um, you know people when they hear that it's faith based, sure. you know they they will have an instant negative a- allergic reaction. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Allergic. And I think one of the things maybe that's important to point out is faith based is as much about my staff and us as it is about anybody else. Like we don't ask people when they first come to us, hey, what are your five favorite Ten Commandments? Yeah. And uh, they only got four. Oh, you're going to have to come back tomorrow. Here's a book. Read it. What's, what's, what's the one you like to break the most? Yeah, right? That whole kill one. <laughs> yeah, well, but it's about us meeting people at their point of need. Also, you, you think about, um, I forget the guy who, who created the first um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step mm-hmm. program and giving it up to a higher source. And it wasn't necessarily a Christian source. Mm-hmm. It was giving it up to a higher, your problems up to a higher source. Right. And, and I'm not surprised that a faith-based uh, a program has a has a better hit ratio. Right. You know, uh, that's not a surprise. Yeah, I mean, the Declaration of Independence talks about the very same thing, right? Endowed with your by your Creator with certain unalienable rights, and uh, you know, uh, so this idea of spirituality is very. Now we are Christian, um, and and we are unabashedly Christian and not shy about it. But our first mission is to meet people where they're at. We are a low barrier. So you can come to us addicted. You can come to us with a, a justice-involved background. You can be a sex offender. You can, all of those different things. That And one of the reasons we don't do families is because we do take sex offenders. But we have partners in the community. So say a young woman comes to us with her kids because she's fleeing domestic violence. We're gonna make sure she's safe and then we're gonna connect her with one of our partners in town that helps young women. Is it a men's only? No, men and women. Okay. About uh, when we enclosed the campus a couple of years ago, uh, we went from about 25% women to about 40 because safety and security is hospitality. And particularly with women, now they're safe. They, they feel like they can sleep at night and they're not going to get assaulted. They're not looking over their shoulder. Uh, it's How many a people dynamic. stay at the shelter any given night? Uh, it depends. You know, the weather is a driver with that. Uh, we'll have anywhere from, in our relief shelter, anywhere from 300 to 450 a night. Wow, that many. Oh, yeah. Wow. How are the accommodations? Uh, they're Spartan. And, and, and that's room okay. Room service is good? Uh, well, the, you know, as long as you take care of yourself. And all anybody can show up as long as they're not a, a, a threat to themselves or to others. That, that's, that, that's basically the bottom line. And... Um, uh, we don't really have a lot of litmus tests for somebody to come in because what we want to do is we want to get them off the street because that's dangerous. Have you ever had to turn away anyone? No. The only reason we would turn somebody away is if they're known violent uh, offender in the sense of what they do at the rescue mission. And I will be honest with you, we do have two individuals that if they show up, uh, we just we, we call the police. because I told you I'm not going back. Yeah, there you go. Uh, because when they come in, they they typically just go straight to the first person and try to get in a fight, punch them. Uh, we have one guy who likes to punch women, as an example. We don't let him in, right? I mean, it's just not going to happen because um, he's done it more than once. And at that point, we're like, I'm sorry, you're going to have to go somewhere else. And uh, they, you know, they drift off. But that's two people. I mean, we're not talking a big bunch of people here. And even if somebody gets in trouble, like they violate one of the, our safety rules or something like that, they're... They can come back. We're about redemption. We're about people coming back. And so we have a process to do that. 
it's an amazing, amazing thing. And you're doing this on Audible so that I can experience it. Yes, the, the Audible version should be out in about a month. I'm looking forward to it. Meeting homelessness with hope. Congratulations, you know how to write. Thanks. And it really is amazing how many people around the country are looking to the Springs Rescue Mission. We're surprised. Uh, I am not. <laughs> I am not at all. And uh, between what you're doing here, Step 13, as a great partner, uh, it really shows there are answers. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the other part of this, is people are frustrated, but there are answers. And so people should look at this book uh, Amazon, I'm assuming. Amazon, Kindle, and then the Audible will be out in about a month. Terrific. Jack, uh, I think what you're doing there is, is heroic, and I'm, thanks. I'm, I'm grateful you're doing well, it. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you, John. I always enjoy it. It's, it's always a good sparring session. It always is. Thank you so much. All right. If you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate, I hope you'll share it with a friend, and I hope you'll subscribe and follow the show. We have new ones released weekly. Remember, this audio was taken from our TV show. To watch it, just search the letters IITV for Independence Institute TV on YouTube for this and many other great conversations. Thank <laughs> you.